And I looked down and I'm like, Hey man, when you get back to the States, I want you to tell everybody that being in Iraq saved your life. Cause if this had happened anywhere else, he would have went back to wherever he was at or laid down on a couch or went up and went to bed, you know, and that would have been the end of it. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Army Colonel Dr. Will Bimson to Wardox. Dr. Bimson is an Army cardiologist who is currently attending the Army War College. He completed his residency and fellowship training at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. He is Ranger qualified and has held multiple operational leadership positions. He played a key role within the 44th Medical Brigade, standing up the Javits Medical Station in New York City in response to the COVID pandemic. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. On this episode of Wardox, we're privileged to welcome Army cardiologist, recent 18th Airborne Corps surgeon, and current Army War College student, Colonel Dr. William Bimson. Will, thanks for joining us. Hey, and thanks for having me, gentlemen. Dr. Bimson, tell us what led you to join the military and why did you become a cardiologist? Uh, so I know it's going to sound kind of weird, but um, for some reason, back in first grade, I decided I, I wanted to be a doc. And uh, I made it to about third grade and somebody told me how expensive medical school was. So legitimately, I was laying in bed uh, crying uh, because I, I knew that there was no way that my parents, uh, we were living on a farm. There was no way that they were going to be paying for, for a $100,000 education at the time. And then in fourth grade, I got lucky and came across somebody uh, that told me the military would pay for everything. And, and that was really, really the start of it. Uh, got into or at college, I did ROTC and then med school scholarship. Here I am. I don't have a good reason for why I went into medicine. I can't remember uh, what it was that triggered it, but the military was pretty set very early on. What brought you to be a cardiologist? Uh, that's kind of another weird one too, because I, I don't think I remember knowing any cardiologist, but but I, I was that weird kid that would pull out the encyclopedias and just kind of read. Even at a young age, siblings still tell me that I was reading on heart stuff. In high school, I, I remember a science fair project on it. Uh, but by the time I got to residency, you know, and doing internal medicine and sitting in an internal medicine clinic, I, I did not feel like primary care was was where I was supposed to be. The idea of really learning a, a single organ system, mastering it or in my wheelhouse. You finished your cardiology fellowship in 2007, and then you were a squadron surgeon in Iraq. Can you tell us a little bit about that position and maybe a memorable case from that deployment? I was the squadron surgeon for 2-1 CAV, 4-2 ID, so 4th Brigade, 2nd Infantry Division out of Fort Lewis. So this was really my first experience, you know, being with the, with the line guys, if you will. So I, I showed up, I, I backfilled the last half of a deployment. I think a favorite memory from that, I mean, I've got, I've got several on the way into Iraq, and this is during 2007. So the surge was still going on. We were part of that, that surge group, you know, coming into theater and hearing all these stories about IEDs, seeing what, what these uh, explosions were capable of. You know, I remember the first time I, 
was uh, heading outside the wire and I'm and it's pitch black. I'm in the back of the striker, you know, and, and I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> tell me, tell me how to get out of this vehicle because it wasn't very intuitive uh, back hatch. That's probably was my first experience. If I could share a couple more, I, I think probably the very first night was uh, memorable as well. So, you know, I'd gotten there, I'd uh, gotten back to my chew or my uh, housing unit, uh, dropped my bags, sitting there uh, pondering uh, that I was going to be there for the next six months. And I don't know if everybody comes to this realization, you know, but, uh, but it certainly uh, popped into my head and I'm like, I'm not leaving here for six months and I'm stuck on this little uh, fob. And I remember walking back outside and uh, just getting a, a breath of fresh air. And that was kind of the last I thought about it. Overall, it was a it was a great experience. Do you have any memorable clinical cases from that deployment? I was in sick call one day. So I was going kind of, I had my, our squadron PA. So we, we ended up eventually doing half and half. So half the days he'd go out and half the days I'd go out. So it was my day uh, to be in sick call. And I was a role one provider, but the at the battalion level, uh, however, we were co-located with the brigade uh, element. So I'm back in the back hallway office space. We're in a hard structure. And somebody came back and got me and it's like, hey, doc, you know, uh, somebody's up front with uh, chest pain. So uh, I go out the front, you know, which, you know, so and you kind of have to understand what was going on in Bakuba or Fob Warhorse at the time during surge. So um, this was the capital, if you will, of uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So there, there was a lot of activity, lots of trauma. So to be pulled back out here as a cardiologist who's filling 62 Bravo or a general medical officer billet, this was my game, right? So came out there and, and it was a, a, a first sergeant who had been playing basketball uh, with this gang. And um, he actually had a, a history uh, previously of some coronary disease, um, but uh, wasn't feeling well and had looked over at his seven, one of his sergeants was like, Hey, I'm going to go lay, lay down uh, for a little bit. And sergeant's like, no top, I'm, I'm taking you up to the clinic. So, so this was, I mean, it's a small fob uh, or forward operating base, brought him into the clinic. And, you know, within Five minutes, you know, he's there. I'm talking to him. They got him hooked up to to the little uh, telemetry machine, and you can see uh, anterior SC elevation on this KG. And about that time, you know, he just, you know, kind of arched backwards, you know, clinched all up. It looked like he was having a seizure, uh, if you will, and just turned plum, plum colored. Look on the monitor, and he's in VFib. Right. So, so this whole time that I've been in there, been there, you know, it's just trauma, trauma, trauma. And now I've got somebody that needs some electricity uh, to fix the problem. So I'm doing CPR and calling for the folks to, to get some pads. The device that we had him hooked up to wasn't enabled, you know. Um, so anyway, they eventually get the pads up, you know, while we're doing CPR, uh, get him shocked out of VFib get a medevac called in to get him out there. We're taking him out to the helicopter to get him flown up to the roll three. And I looked down and I'm like, Hey man, when you get back to the States, I want you to tell everybody that being in Iraq saved your life. Cause if this had happened anywhere else, he would have went back to wherever he was at or laid down on a couch or went up and went to bed, you know, and that would have been the end of it. So I got a lot of accolades from that activity, but honestly it was the, the E7, his battle buddy, who was insisting on him to come up to the to the aid station, should be credited with saving his life. But that was a 
a good reminder that while yes, it's trauma based, there's still medical things uh, that that show in show up at the door, uh, and you got to be ready to take care of it. So that that certainly changed some mindsets that hey, we need to know where all of our stuff is because we don't know what's going to show up. Probably one that sticks out. And it, it sounded, as I recall, he did great, made it all the way back to Walter Reed. So you said you were in the hotbed of Al-Qaeda. Did you ever feel like you were in danger? And, and what were your emotions um, being in that place? Yeah, so there was. So when I first got there, so my my wife, you know, made it very clear you know, what uh, what her expectations were. But again, if you can imagine this small fob, I mean, you could run around the perimeter and I think it was maybe uh, two miles around. So um, there was certainly smaller places than where I was at. And I was grateful for all the, the good stuff that we had. But I felt like I'd I just spent the last six and a half years inside Walter Reed and it was six years of training. So three for residency and three for fellowship and six months of staff. But here was my opportunity. I did not have on my mind that I was going to be doing operational medicine. So this was my opportunity to get out and see what the army was about. Um, so I got very early on, you know, I sat down with my, my, uh, squadron PA. I'm like, Hey man, I want to go out with the guys I said, no problem. I've already done my share. Um, that eventually changed, took turns, but so I did that probably for the first month and a half, or maybe it was just a month before my wife learned what I was doing. <laughs> so, um, you know, but, but looking back on it or maybe halfway through, like we were still coming under uh, fire. So rockets are still getting fired onto to the base. Um, but the times that it happened seemed to be the times that I was not on, on the fob. So my argument to my wife is, Hey, Hey babe, you know, it's, <laughs> I'm safer outside. Like if I'm, if I'm actually there on the fob, uh, they're coming, they know where you are and you're a, a sitting target. You know, obviously that's very, very uh, faulty logic, but, but, it was uh, probably always on your mind, but certainly first time out the wire, like I, I literally was sitting in the back of the striker and was just thinking of all these stories that I'd heard, you know, uh, and was just expecting this, the explosion to happen right once we left the gate. And, you know, thank God that never happened. There was another time where we were going down to an area. It had just been cleared. And funny enough, uh, the chaplain and I were, were together and we're walking down this road and I remember even getting out of the vehicle uh, at another location where a sniper had just taken one of our soldiers. And you're stepping out of this vehicle, and you're just under the realization that you just you don't know what's going to happen. But if you, you spend all your time thinking about it, it's just going to get in the way of, of uh, enjoying your time uh, with the guys and completing your mission. So I would say early on, it was something that I thought about. But towards the end, I don't believe that that was anything that really weighed down on the army would probably argue that that's part of the problem with complacency is when you, when you stop worrying about those things, but I still kept a healthy respect for, for what I was supposed to be doing. If I may, I'll throw one other in. Well, I went out with my guys, they were doing a, a night operation. We went out to an even smaller forward base and I'm the only guy that doesn't have night vision goggles and I'm getting ready to go out with these guys at night. And I distinctly remember talking to the section sergeant or the, the sergeant in, in the control of the three trucks we had. I'm like, hey, man, I don't have night vision. And, you know, I'm an exotic pet. I realize that I don't belong to you. You know, but, you know, promise me that you will not get up and move until you see me. He's like, don't worry, doc, we got you. And, and he did just that. So it was probably 
you know, that would, that would have been one of the times where knowing that you're not organic to the unit or to that small unit, you know, that's how people get disconnected from the element. I felt like I was a little bit outside of my element or my comfort zone. And thankfully there was a, a sergeant there that that took care. In 2011, after two different assignments as a cardiologist, you were then deployed to Afghanistan. What was your position in that deployment? And tell us your most memorable clinical case or something that stands out from that particular experience. Sure. So, so I went as a brigade surgeon for, it was under a different name, but it's one of our military intelligence brigades. So again, it was to a small fob. We were really a role one. However, uh, we had a Navy FST attached to it. So I like to call ourselves the role one uh, plus or uh, role one enhanced. So there's only really one maneuvering battalion under this structure. So this one, again, I got there and it seemed like they pretty much had sick call down. And I, I felt like my position was more to uh, get out and about. And I, my brigade commander at the time actually pulled me and a couple others in. And for all of his key engagements, he would take, would take us out, this, this, uh, these few people. And my job was just sit there and observe and take it all in. And we'd come back from, from the mission engagement. We would uh, discuss what happened and the insights that we had. Another interesting memory from, from Afghanistan, we had a, an area that was in our area of operation that was far away. Rarely, I mean, it was pretty much closed off. You can get there by road, uh, but we would jump on a Chinook and we'd, we'd fly down there with our, our deputy commanding officer and we'd spend two or three days down there. Uh, and this was, again, one of those feeling outside of your element. However, we'd go out and we'd go on patrol. You know, So the last time I'd done a patrol was maybe at a Vance camp back in 1995. So I'm out walking with my guys. I've got uh, my aid bag on my back and uh, carrying a weapon and we would go out for 20, 25 clicks at a time. And I remember the first time I had these standard issue boots and we took off walking and we made it maybe half the way or maybe not even that far. And we stopped and took a rest. We're walking through rocky, sandy uh, mountain desert. Finally, we're ready to stop and I'm ready to do a rucksack uh, flop, you know, kick back, you know, relax. And my DCO looks over and he's like, Hey doc, you know, make sure you go around and you check everybody. And I'm thinking to myself, check everybody. I'm a cardiologist from from uh, Northern Virginia at that point, and I'm walking around out in this this uh, desert environment in Afghanistan. My feet are killing me, you know, and I'm going around to check on these other guys. But that's exactly what I did. I got up and around and checked on everybody. I absolutely shredded my feet by the end of it. But getting back to where we were staying and getting getting your boots off, and I thought I had enough to bring a pair of uh, cheap Crocs with me. So you know, I just remember getting my feet out of those boots and slipping into Crocs, and then you just sit around and and talk about everything that happened during the day, and and all of a sudden all that misery just melts away, and you're just with the guys, far away place, and this one in particular, you know, at nighttime. You know, there's no light pollution because the only lights were, you know, light bulbs where, you know, a local person would pull, pull the battery from their truck that had just charged the battery and they would use that to run uh, lights at, at night. So you'd look up at the stars, stars that you'd never seen before. The, you know, a look at the Milky Way that, that I had never witnessed until I was there. And that kind of, again, you're, you're far away from home, you know, uh, doing things that you're not used to, but, been almost 19 years ago and sitting here smiling and talking to you guys. 
So in 2016, you decided to add some extra to your regimen and went to ranger school when you're in your 40s. Why did you decide to go undergo that training so far into your medical career and at that age? Yeah, it doesn't sound very smart, does it? <laughs> so I was 42 when I, when I went, and it was something that I was trying to get after for a long time. And I thought I'd actually figured it out in the couple of years before I actually went. And um, unfortunately, HRC needed me, me to move up to Fort Bragg. So that kind of put a kibosh on the plans that I had kind of set into motion from Fort Jackson, Jackson down in Moncrief Army Medical Center. However, um, Bob Wenzel, Colonel Wenzel, uh, who was at HRC at the time, as he's pitching this new position, he's like, you know, Will, I, I know you want to go to Ranger School. There is no better place to do it uh, than Fort Bragg. So so off I went and I showed up to, to Fort Bragg. My first sit down with my brigade commander, the sustainment brigade commander, sat down with him and said, sir, this is my first real line unit assignment, and I want to do anything and everything Army training to include Ranger School. And I'm sure he thought, you know, I was just blowing smoke at that, that point. But then for the next several months, that's all I talked about. That's all I trained for. And eventually he came up to me and it's like, so when are you going to pre-Ranger? Sir, I'm going to go at the, at the end of March. It's like, all right, well, good luck. Did pre-ranger 18 days there on Fort Bragg and then 10 days of rest in between and, uh, headed down to Fort Benning to really start the pain. Tell but, uh, us a little bit about ranger school and what it was like to be a seasoned physician going through it. So probably my first you know, thought on it was when you first get down to Benning, you're standing in line, right? Classic army. <laughs> so you're uh, waiting to funnel into this building and, and I walk into the building and I just happen to be in the front row. So I sit down and across from me is, is one of the first sergeants uh, down there. And he looks at me, he's like, man, you're old. He's like, how old are you? I said, 42. What do you do in the army? I'm a cardiologist. Prior to that, I was thinking, man, what am I going to tell people? You don't have any rank on, you don't have any of your patches on. So nobody knows you. It's a pretty stripped down uniform. So as I'm sitting there before I even go in, I'm like, what am I going to say to people when they ask me, what do I do? Or, you know, what rank are you? You're not really supposed to ask any of that. Uh, and this first sergeant uh, took care of that for me. Now, as far as the old part, it was pretty blatantly obvious. I, I could have been a lot of these Ranger students' father. I think the average age is in the, the 22 range. So I was 20 years past the average. But I think, obviously, it was great training. It's pitched as the, the premier uh, leadership uh, training school. Yeah. And I would say the thing that I learned from it was a whole lot of humility. So, so whereas these guys coming from the infantry basic officer leader course or coming from uh, the Ranger Regiment or from uh, regular line units like, like the 82nd or the other infantry divisions, these guys are doing all this stuff all the time, at least the tactics, right? And here I am. Yes, I'm, I know what you're talking about, but the last time I did that was in 1995. Sure, something's changed. So it was, it was a humbling experience. And arguably the leadership part, you know, there's a time to lead. There's a time to follow. There's a time to, to speak up. And there's a time to just shut your mouth. And obviously being 
42 years old, you know, and having been in the army for a while, you know, I think, I think the lessons I learned was sometimes just keep your mouth quiet, take whatever anybody's uh, giving you, just charge on because there's times where you just need to ranger up and uh, do what somebody's asking you. Any idea that you might have of fair or not your job or anything like that kind of goes out the window. Everybody's on on the team and everybody's rowing hard. It's got to keep rowing. So you have a lot of experience at different levels within the 18th Airborne Corps. From your perspective of a former Corps surgeon, what are the main challenges and concerns in operational medicine today? Uh, so as the Corps surgeon, you know, this was something that we thought about. And I know the rest of the Army is looking at this too. But, you know, we really focused on what, what are our capability gaps for large-scale combat operations, LISCO. So we put a lot of, lot of energy to that. Inside of the Army Health System, we have these 10 functional areas, if you will, that we're responsible for as the surgeon in charge, right? So someone owns the stuff, right? But, but as the surgeon, be it from the battalion or brigade or division or corps, you know, ultimately you're, you're looking at all the pieces that, that you have. And some of them, some of them you're not going to own. So a lot of those belong uh, inside of, of other units that you don't have direct control of, but, but you're still responsible for knowing that or for facilitating that, that command and control to enable all the healthcare that's going to be delivered inside of your area of operation. And that command and control, probably the best way to think about it, of these 10 functional areas, right, the goal is that none of these 10 things are going to culminate or going to run out of capacity uh, before the other things. Um, and that's, that's something that I think certainly I can answer for myself. Like, I don't think I got the level of understanding of, of those positions probably until way late in the game. Probably at this point, I would say, you know, I feel like I did a, did a good job at uh, core, you know, but at this point I'd say I'd probably be a, a, a really good division surgeon right now. And I'd probably be a great brigade surgeon, you know, and that's kind of how, you know, our system arguably works. And maybe that's just my thinking about it, but you get into a position, you really get into it and you kind of figure out the nuts and the bolts and you're, you're doing well, you know, but then it really takes you going up to the next level to really see, you know, this bigger picture and how you as a surgeon uh, had your pieces that you were managing. What advice would you give to military providers who are going into operational assignments with combat units? I would say from the operational medicine perspective, that's probably the thing that I would impress on folks the most is um, if you're the if you're the brigade surgeon, it everything that is medical inside your unit is yours. You know, there might be other people there that that actually own it on a hand receipt or the ones that are actually maintaining it, you know, but you as the surgeon, you're the one that should have this global picture of how this system runs expeditionary uh, setting. So you really got to, you got to dive into it, you know, understand who owns what and where things are, because in the end, you're, you're advising your, your uh, commander um, so that he can fight his fight. So you're, you're fighting the medical fight to enable him to, to keep going with his, because you don't want to be the reason for, for him having to stop to take care of, of the piece that you could have planned better or better managed. Obviously, that's a big ask, you know, for, for all of us. But I think that's something that with training and mentoring, that's something that operational medicine 
excellent. You've had some unique and interesting experiences as a military physician supporting the nation's COVID-19 efforts. Can you tell us a few memorable stories from that experience? So at the time that this was all kicking off, I was at uh, 44th Med Brigade. So our first kind of entry into it was standing up uh, outside uh, testing, which, uh, you know, was a great mission and, and I enjoyed it. But I remember we're out at the at the Fort Bragg Fairgrounds and I got pulled to the side uh, by my commander. She said, hey, uh, we're going to New York City. New York City, what are we doing up there? Well, and under the original premise, we were going to kind of be the the liaison officer, kind of that outward face, you know, of this, of the military response. So there was four of us total that went up. We flew up in a, a little uh, prop plane up to New Jersey and then got on the ground and we showed up. So we were getting called up to the Javits uh, Convention Center. So get there and they, the Corps of Engineers is in the process of, of setting up. If you, and some of your listeners have probably seen pictures, but if you think of like a big cubicle farm, but with beds uh, inside of it. You know, that's what they, that's what was getting set up in this convention center. And originally when we got there, you know, it, the mission continued to, to change appropriately. So, but when we first got there, the public health service uh, was there uh, and we thought, okay, well, we've got this many folks and they got this many folks. We can man this many beds but once you start getting into it and you're like, okay, well, who are we taking? Like, what do I have available? What's in, what's in their uh, pharmacy set? And as it turned out, you know, it was very much the set that was brought to us was really for like a hurricane relief. It wasn't to stand up a whole hospital. You know, I say all that, but uh, the experience itself of my army time, half of it's probably been inside of uh, MTFs. I've done pretty much every position inside of the MTF besides commanding one, and then all my positions on the operational side. But I felt like the the army had built me specifically for that position up at Javits, because in effect we're we're standing up a. 2,500 bed hospital in a convention center, right? So, and and I know it got some bad press at the beginning because there was slow t- filling up and getting people there. But at the peak of it, we had 450 patients in a convention center. And even just getting up to that 450, the idea things that, that when you walk into a hospital that you just don't think about, how are you going to toilet people. Well, in a regular hospital, the toilet's right there. So a nurse's aide or or somebody else can walk a patient 10 feet and be at a bathroom. But if you're in a convention center, it might be a hundred meter walk to get to the bathroom. It's out on the periphery, right, of a convention center. How are you going to feed everybody, clothe everybody? How are their linens getting done? It was all inspiring to even consider it. And each time you're like, okay, I think we got this figured out. And it's another thing, you know, or, Hey, how, how are we going to get oxygen to all these people? And the experience that I saw up there was, you know, it had so much attention from the national and from the state and from the local and all these agencies. I think there was 15 or 16 different agencies there, you know, and it was magical. <laughs> like, so from uh, worrying about oxygen, you know, we're getting in uh, um, uh, oxygen concentrators to, you know, uh, a contractor's coming in and punching a hole through the wall of the convention center, you know, and setting up 
you know, an array of, of copper tubing to distribute liquid oxygen to 550 beds at 15 liters per minute. You know, at that point, we had more oxygen inside of a convention center than any hospital in New York City. And the 450 patients that we eventually got up to was the seventh highest concentration of uh, COVID positive patients. And if you ponder it for just a second, like 450 patients, right? Johns Hopkins has a thousand beds, right? You know, uh, that exceeds the largest hospital with current beds in operation inside the military. It was uh, an experience like none other, and, uh, one that I felt like the Army, through all the positions that I'd had up until that point, had, had put the tools that I needed to, to work with, with others, get it up and running, help out the, the city of New York. I would, I would say my job solely was administrative, you know, but we had a team of spectacular Navy, Air Force, Army, multi-service, multi-compo, uh, doing amazing things down there. So one of the things I understand from the Javits Center experience was that there was a lot of cooperation that was needed with the Navy hospital ship that was there and the local hospitals. Can you tell us about the experiences of coordinating care with so many different medical facilities? Yeah, Roger. So that was something that kind of evolved uh, as we went. So when we first got there, we really didn't have comms with with the local community, uh, but eventually we broke down that that barrier. I mean, they they had a, a coordination cell there uh, in the Javits Center. We got the opportunity to talk to to uh, local leaders in the in the outlying hospitals. I did manage to go out and uh, visit a couple of those specific to the Navy as they brought in the USS Comfort. Um, we had a li- Navy liaison officer uh, that was there. Arguably, this is probably one of our, our great wins too. You know, again, things that, that you just don't think about inside of a regular hospital, but when you're pulling from 51 hospitals, if you will, from New York City, you know, ours predominantly came maybe 17 of those, but bringing those in through this fusion cell, if you will, you know, and lining that up to an MOD uh, and, you know, we had put together our inclusion exclusion criteria you know, to update what our capabilities were and what we could actually take care of. So we meticulously went through and said, okay, I, I can't take care of a post-MI patient here. Can't take care of a post-op if we set it within 10 days. You don't have a CT scanner. There's a lot of stuff that you can't do. Ping-ponging a patient back and forth was uh, not what we were looking for. As far as the comfort, so we originally started as a, a COVID-free entity, and then it became obvious that that, that was not what uh, New York City needed for us to do. So g- pushing that up through the chain and eventually we got the approval to take COVID. So, but the 11 patients that we had, we ended up um, uh, sending those out to the comfort uh, because they were under the same uh, restrictions that were when we started. But eventually uh, that changed. So, you know, and I certainly don't want to speak for the Navy, but this was the first time I'd been on on uh, the comfort or sister ship, the mercy, but they took a lot of our ICU level care, you know, went in there and the comfort is set up as a big bay. Uh, so literally there's just beds stacked head to head, toe to toe, but it, I mean, it was a well-coordinated, you know, doing everything that we could to help out New York city. And I'm very proud of the work that we did there and proud of all those agencies that, that made it happen. It seemed like there was just always somebody that had like this magic cell phone, right? Like you, you know, at the time masks were in limited quantity. So we're cycling through N95s down the floor. At the time we were putting them in brown bags and setting them up on these racks. We ran out 
of these brown bags, you know, and I don't know who made the phone call, but all of a sudden <laughs> there's all these brown bags from McDonald's holding masks up on the wall, you know, and it was just a series of every little thing that would pop up. There, there seemed to be somebody there that could call and make the magic happen. Uh, again, it probably, probably one of the highlights uh, of my military career was working up in Javits. It was extremely tiring, like hours that I've never worked at anywhere else, maybe not sleep deprived like ranger school, but certainly an intense operation that took a lot of coordination, probably made me a better army officer for it. So we certainly hope that there's never the need for such a large scale military presence in a domestic city of the United States. But what experience would you say if this were to happen again, that you learned that you would want to pass along to someone who was in your role that had to coordinate all the care again for the Army assets? I think there's a couple of things that, that we learned specific to uh, a pandemic. So I'm sure that you recall that there was, there was a lot of these satellite places uh, stood up, you know, but the experience specific to, you know, kind of expanding existing bed space, the idea of doing it in a satellite campus is probably the last resort. I'd rather clean out a cafeteria in a hospital and stack up beds uh, than I would to, to move them aside. Because if you can imagine, if you're in a convention center, you know, everything that's still, so all the patient admin functions, all the custodial care, like all that stuff still has to happen. So arguably it's, it's best to absolutely max out any and all uh, space that's not being utilized or being utilized for something else before uh, seeking out another facility. I mean, obviously we did it and we could do it. And I know that those uh, lessons have been learned and been well-documented. So I think if, it, if the need ever arose again, they would, they would pull out everything that we'd learned and go from there. I would say one of my other big takeaways was, it, was from it. Um, when we first got there, I thought I had this many uh, personnel to work and I needed to take care of this really huge number of patients, which would have been fine and, and certainly would have been taxing. However, the kind of the idea of where's the community level of care? Like, are we, are, are we at normal function? So the same standards of care are in effect, you know, and you're just really busy and you've turned off all these other you know, um, not necessarily needed uh, functions, or are you in crisis mode? Like the wheels are coming off, you know, do the best that you can. Uh, and that was probably, probably until we got out and talked to those local hospital leaders or talking to the nurse on the ward, I'm like, hey man, what's your all staffing model like right now? How many patients do you have? I'm like, oh, you know, I've got, I've got my normal load. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, so if y'all are operating busy, you know, and you've certainly changed a lot of stuff, but you're, staff, you're doing your staffing model as you've normally done it, well, that, that was important information to come back because, you know, I did not want the quality of care, you know, as unusual as it was doing it in a convention center, you know, I felt like if the, I should, have, I should meet the standard that's being delivered by the community that I'm supporting because I didn't want to have bad outcomes. I think that's probably the two points that, that would be the most insightful should, should another round of that come up in the future. Well, we've really enjoyed the privilege to speak with Colonel Dr. Will Bimson on WarDocs. Will, thanks so much for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thanks for your service to our nation. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's my honor. Thank you for all you're doing. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.